0: This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B.
1: Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. Well, I have two extremely different topics for you. Both are fascinating. Later in the show, Seattle-based music journalist Gillian Garb will join me to talk about her new gigantic book, it really is large, It's titled Elton John at 75. We're going to touch on the one-time Reg Dwight's early days, his chance meeting with Bernie Taupin, his marriages, his work for AIDS, oh, and so much more. First, the book is titled The Biggest Ideas in the Universe, Space, Time, and Motion. The author, Sean Carroll. Sean, welcome to Life Elsewhere.
2: Thanks very much for having me.
1: Before we go any further, I, I... this is going to sound kind of odd I I, when I'm reading a book and I know I'm going to be interviewing somebody I I often take the book with me wherever I go so for instance yesterday evening late afternoon I stopped into a I guess what one would call a favorite watering hole and I and I just sit there privately just going through a book and, and and I did this last evening I also happen to know a couple of gentlemen that that frequent the place, and one of them is a retired u s. marshal. And he said to me, "What are you reading?" And I showed him the book, and he said, "Oh." and I said he said, "What's it about?" And I said, "Well, it's about a lot of different things, but physics comes into it. That's one thing, which is very important." He said, "Oh, yes, physics I'm all about physics. my My youngest son." He uh, had a major, he got a major in physics. He now works on Wall Street. And he thought that was hilariously funny. And I thought, I wonder if that is funny. So I wanted to ask you, but hold on, there's more. The other gentleman that was there at the table, um, he just strangely enough, is a private detective he used to be a work for the police and now is a private detective and again he butted in and said oh what what are you reading who's it by and I said Sean Carroll and he said what, well tell me about him and I said well he he's a professor and he's and I said I hope I've got this right but he's a professor of philosophy and he said oh in my job I've met a lot of philosophers along the way and they all think they know what's going on of course, he was <laughs> tongue-in-cheek, of course. So those two little incidents I wanted to start with to tell you about how people react or how people that I know reacted to your book, which ties in with how I reacted to your book. I was, first of all, the looks at the title, and when the PR people sent it, sent it to me, I thought, mm, this is going to be hard going. This is going to be mm-hmm. quite a slog, but it's not. It's fascinating. So having said all that, that long introduction, Sean, did you or do you know that sometimes people completely misunderstand or they get a completely different idea about physics, philosophy, w- whatever you want to, whatever, whatever we're talking about, it seems to me that it's a kind of strange juxtaposition of people knowing but not
2: knowing. Yeah, no, of course, I get all the kinds of reactions that you could possibly imagine. But what's interesting is that almost no one just says, ah, who cares? Right, yeah. I mean, I get people who are intimidated, like ah, I don't, I don't get that. It's very scary, and I get people who are fascinated. I've gotten free drinks in bars myself from talking about dark energy with the uh, bartender or or with the people next to me. Yeah, and people want to understand it, and I think that's a big reason behind the motivation for the book is that I think that we underestimate the extent to which people really do want to understand these things. That's- they might have been damaged or scared off by bad situations and experiences along the way in high school or subsequently. But it doesn't have to be that way. So I, I want to reach out to those people who maybe could be understanding much more about the universe than they currently do, but haven't quite been guided through the journey.
1: Why do you? This is the question. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there is this, this fear, this sort of I, uh, reluctancy for people to really delve in, but when they get a book like yours and they, oh, you're talking about something and you make it so easy to understand. But why do you think there is this this reluctance to really delve in?
2: Well, I do think that there's all sorts of weirdnesses about how we teach mathematics and science to students in high school and elsewhere, and I think that uh, on the math side you know, it's kind of unforgiving. You get the right answer or you don't. It's not oh. like other other courses where you can come close and not quite, but still you're doing pretty well, right? Yes. And that can be very frustrating, especially since sometimes you get a great teacher, sometimes you get a not so great teacher, but the, the equations are still the same either way and you have to... Yes fess up to it. And then on the science side of things, I think that we teach science very often as a set of results, a set of true facts that you have to learn Whereas the spirit of science is much more that of a process, a process of exploration and constant failure. (laughs) As a working scientist, you're always putting forward ideas. And then rather than just saying, oh, that idea is good, it's probably right, you have to really think hard about how you would find evidence for or against that idea. And I I wish that that kind of process were what we focused on when we taught science at a young age, because then people would... Think of it as kind of a fun little game. You know, it's like we do, we always challenge ourselves with these made up rules and games that we have. Here it's the universe that is challenging us, and it's a very rewarding game to play.
1: Thank you for explaining that. And you touched on something which is so important to me. And that is when I was in high school, I was absolutely terrible at math. And partly this was because i had this notion that why do i need to get the same answer as everybody else in class i loved writing essays because they were very different to anybody else's i loved art which is what i went on to do uh and that was a peculiar thing for me so the 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 i had a very good teacher in, in a math teacher who said you know norman you don't need to be trying to answer like everybody else. See if you can just do your own, figure it out for yourself. And that really, <laughs> really helps. <laughs> so yeah, it's interesting stuff. I, you know, you answer a lot of questions in the book that I, I I think I think about them, and I sometimes I'm driving, and you know, ideas come into your into your mind, but something triggers something that triggers something. And I, I think the other day I had read an article about black holes and, and I was thinking, gosh, that is, oh, that would be fabulous to, to, to know more about black. And then lo and behold, I'm reading your book and you talk about black holes. So just for a layman like me, what are we really talking about when we talk about black holes?
2: Well, this is one of the big payoffs, I think, of the book. You know, like I said, it's not that long of a book, but there's a a journey to get there. And the final chapter is called Black Holes. And I mean, not to give not to keep things mysterious for too long. A black hole is a region of space where the gravitational field is so strong that nothing can escape it, not even light. You would have to move faster than the speed of light to escape and nothing can do that. But the question is, should such things exist? And the great part of the story is that nobody wanted them to. Nobody was trying to invent black holes. As soon as Einstein wrote down his equation in 1915, his famous equation for the gravitational field of a curved space-time, a couple years later, Carl Schwarzschild, who was a German as astronomer who worked in, it was during World War II, and he was actually in the German army calculating trajectories for artillery shells at the front. Uh, but in his spare time, he learned general relativity, Einstein's theory of gravity, and he solved the equations. And Einstein was shocked because he didn't think the equations would be that easy to solve. But lurking in that solution that Schwarzschild found is the idea of a black hole that neither Schwarzschild nor Einstein ever understood that idea i mean einstein died in the 1950s and it wasn't until the late 50s early 60s that scientists physicists really appreciated the fact that schwarzschild's solution to einstein's equation means there are black holes we really had to fight to understand that better and the way i like to put it is the equations are always smarter than we are (laughs) that's the great thing about physics is that Einstein came up with a general idea and then the idea it belongs to everybody it's not just einstein's idea you know anyone can use it i i personally understand more about general relativity than albert einstein ever did not because i'm smarter than albert einstein oh. but because i live later than him and we've learned yes. a lot about it since his time
1: so this this leads me to ask you this question that's been bothering me after reading your book is if Einstein, Einstein was alive today with the knowledge, as you say, that you have, and the knowledge that we all have, and with computers and the, and the ability to be able to, to do what we can do, do you think Einstein – where would Einstein be? How would we rate Einstein now with the knowledge that he had then to, 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 versus what he could have now?
2: You know, I don't want to break any news here, but Einstein was a very smart cookie. He would have been fine. Uh, You know, what was great about Einstein, there are two things I think that were great about Einstein. There's probably more than two, but the two things that stand out that I talk about in the book is number one, he had an amazing physical insight. You know, he was really a physicist's physicist when it comes right down to it. I would put him and Galileo in my top two at figuring out how to simplify a complex situation down to something that really gave you insight. Right. And in terms of pictures and thought experiments, you know, not writing down long equations. The other thing that distinguishes Einstein was that he was he was very good at math, but not great. He was not a mathematician himself. He really didn't want to learn any more math than he needed to. Yeah. But when he needed to, he did. Yeah. And when he when he realized through his physical insight that the correct way to think about gravity was as the curvature of space time he didn't know anything about the mathematics of curvature and, and geometry but one of his friends from university marcel Grossmann, was an expert and so einstein got tutoring from his friend until he knew enough about this at the time newfangled theory of mathematics to apply it to the physical world yes so well put
1: you know, one question that I often ask authors who write nonfiction books is about their preparation, is about the, the the work they put into the work. And I was thinking with you, with Sean Carroll. Yes, of course, you had to you had to do preparation for the book. Yes, you had to do research, but you you also had so much already to talk about, so much to put to put in into the book. I was just wondering. About for you, for Sean Carroll, whether this was just a very straightforward task to write the book, or, or, or was it a, one of those things where you had to edit yourself along the way?
2: Did well, you... these yeah, books, please. this book started with a series of videos that I did uh, when we locked down, when the pandemic came along. And I wanted to. Exp- I thought that you know, trying to offer something to people out there who were stuck at their homes, I would get do a series of videos that helped explain some big ideas in the universe. But my, I was doing two videos, an hour long each, every week. So it was quite a rate of things happening. And so my self-imposed rule is that I wouldn't talk about anything I didn't know about already. <laughs> so I was All just right. explaining things that the yeah. working physicist should know. Now, but when it comes to the book, it's a little bit different. So two things made it more than just that amount of work. One is I I really, really wanted to make it as accessible as possible, right? I mean, for the videos, I just basically chit-chatted in real time. And there's an effort that needs to go into figuring out what you can leave out. Yes. And what you really need to, like, lovingly, slowly go over in detail and, you know, picking and choosing that. And I'm about to go on a little tiny mini book tour where I will give a one hour long public lecture where right. I show you Einstein's equation and I explain what's in it. And that again, is a challenge to you know really distilling it down to the essence. And the other part where research is involved is because I love talking about the history of how these things came to be. And physicists are terrible generally about knowing the history of their own field. And so you're always discovering little nuggets of of fun stories along the way, whether it's Isaac Newton getting into uh, an argument over letters, a correspondence argument with Gottfried Leibniz. Today it would be an email, but back then they were sending letters back and forth and how that was actually uh, facilitated by the Princess of Wales, by Carolyn of Ansbach, who was a, a royal... Uh, in the court, who eventually became the Queen of England, but she had been tutored by Leibniz, by one of the great scientists of her day, and then she moved to England, and Leibniz was afraid that she would fall under the spell of Isaac Newton, so he warned her against that, and she mischievously started Newton and Leibniz arguing with each other, and there's just hilarious sets of stories like that that illuminate the fact that at the end of the day, it is still a human endeavor.
1: (laughs) so fascinating you know there's two things that you said in that last piece that i had written down earlier isaac newton question mark because i wanted to ask you about the relevance of isaac newton you also talked about your preparation for the book putting the book together and and leaving in or taking out the editing and and that that fascinates me a great deal so uh, there's so much to learn no matter what, in you know, in our in our strange world that we live in, and, and I I wonder for 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 yourself, Sean Carroll. You write about, you talk about, you you give lectures, and and you do videos. Do you at some point say to yourself, "I I just need a break, <laughs> I just need <laughs> to stand, stand back"? I mean, is your brain sometimes just like? Gosh, I'm I'm overloaded with information.
2: Well, there's good news and bad news, uh, (laughs) depending on whether you want to be overloaded or not. I mean, I absolutely am overloaded uh, with many, many things going on in my various roles out there in the world. You know, I'm a university professor. I have the podcast. I write books, etc. But the good news is, and this is very, very intentional, is that I'm doing very, a very large number of different kinds of things. So I'm not doing the same exact thing over and over again. This is what keeps me fresh and energized. This is why I have my own podcast called Mindscape where I don't just interview physicists or philosophers, I interview economists and musicians and uh, writers and so forth. And it's that constant difference of kinds of ideas and kinds of things that we're talking about that keeps me engaged and and really, really excited about what's going to come next.
1: Yes, it was really a bit of a kind of Backwards question because I, I totally presume, presumed the answer that you were going to give and I and I was being a somewhat tongue in cheek asking if you're somewhat overloaded. What was the 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 big uh, discovery for you, if if there was one, in putting the book together and looking back? You know, you do that thing where you've got it and you go, oh, okay. Let me just let me just reappraise what I've done. Was there something that you you thought to yourself, gosh, I hadn't thought of that before.
2: Well, when I first started the video series, my idea was I would take a word like time or entropy, a concept, a big idea, and I would explain it for, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes, and we would call it a day. (laughs) And what I discovered was, of course, as a professional physicist, I'm tempted to include some of the details, and those details end up involving equations, right? And there's a usual conventional wisdom that as Stephen Hawking said in his book, every equation in your book cuts your sales in half. Yes. And you know, my new book has about a hundred equations. So you can do the math. I'm gonna owe money by the end of uh, the whole process. But what I realized was of course when we teach physics students their craft we do so with an eye to making professional physicists so we teach them not only the ideas but how to manipulate the equations how to solve them in a wide variety of circumstances and it takes years and and that's perfectly fine that's okay and then when we talk to people who are not professional physicists we think to ourselves can't use equations that would turn everyone off no one will ever get it there's a huge gap in between these two perspectives, where you can say, look, I would like to give you the ideas, I'm not going to train you to be a professional physicist, There's not going to be homework, I'm not going to make you do problem sets or anything like that. But I will give you the equations and explain to you what they mean. And the revelation was by taking that philosophy, you can go very far, very fast. You know, we start in chapter one of the book, we start with things in the universe that don't change, right? Conservation of energy. It's just the same amount of energy at all moments of time. It can't get simpler than that. And by the end, you're doing tensor analysis and solving Einstein's equation. And it's just very, very impressive to me, and I'm surprised I didn't realize it sooner, how far you can get by just focusing on the ideas rather than the nitty gritty of having to solve the equations. I'm
1: so glad you explained it like that because this is something.
2: as As I picked up the book the first time I picked
1: up, let's <clears book, throat> turn it the right way around. Um, I'm thinking myself. I don't think I've seen a book with this many equations in. And I, and I, and I first of all, it was kind of, for somebody like me that, that is kind of scared of mathematics. I kind of thought, oh, this is kind of scary. Yep. <laughs> but I think after the first couple of pages, it didn't scare me at all. But I have a question for you. This is, a oh gosh, my silly questions. But the equations, the actual illustrations of the equations themselves, are these something that you drew or you did yourself and then they were photocopied or what? How, how does that work?
2: Ah, this is a great question. I bet no one else is going to answer it. But guess what? My publisher, Dutton, which is part of Penguin yeah. Random House, they, you know, they don't publish textbooks. That's not what they do. Uh they, they publish what are called trade books. And in my previous books, I would always have one or two equations per book. Uh, yeah. but now we have one or two equations per page, <laughs> or at yeah, least, you know, sure. one equation every couple of pages. And so it was a big challenge for them. And we really worked hard. So there are typesetting programs for equations. Um, and we had to work at a very sophisticated level because Microsoft Word is not really up to the task. No. no <laughs> you does. can include very simple equations, but some of ours were a little bit trickier. Yes. So we went back and forth where I would send them, you know, PDF files or, you know, LaTeX markup files if you want to know the jargon there. There are ways to encapsulate equations into text and then retranslate them. And so uh, we broke new ground. We really had to work hard in how to do how to do this. And and then guess what? There's an audiobook <laughs> where I read the book out loud. So you can't even see the equations, right? So I have to read all of those equations out loud. And there's a a PDF file that accompanies the audiobook that has all the equations in it, but I think that we're just, we're learning new things. This is not well-trodden that, ground in terms of uh, trade book production. Sean, that is fascinating. I'm so
1: glad I asked that question. Is it possible that you could read an equation out for us right now? Is that Was that something you could do?
2: Sure, I mean, I can read Einstein's equation. I put it right up in the beginning of the book and because when people say, when people hear the phrase Einstein's equation, yeah, people on the street, probably they think of, if they think of anything at all, E equals mc squared. That's the most famous equation, right? And that equation, even though it's very important, is number one, not his most important equation. And number two, it's almost too easy to understand. Energy is mass times the speed of light squared. You can kind of get that. The real Einstein's equation that made him famous is r mu nu minus one half r g mu nu equals eight pi g t mu nu and that equation on the left hand side is the curvature of space time on the right hand side is matter and energy and if you understand what that equation means you understand the universe at a very deep fundamental level and by page 200 in this book you will understand it
1: (laughs) yes oh my goodness so thank you so much for doing that you make it sound so incredibly easy i love it it's so yeah and you you knew you knew the equation almost off by heart didn't you you you, i I, I do
2: know that equation by heart this is my job yeah (laughs)
1: that's your job yes sure when when you're talking to a a Neanderthal like myself, um, does it, does it sort of, I guess it's sort of entertaining for you sometimes to hear people ask sort of questions that you know, I guess, you know, they're going to ask that, that because they don't have the knowledge that you have. They don't have the, the insights that you have, but I guess at the same time, you must be fascinated by what, by the questions that people do ask you.
2: Well, it's true that very often if you give a public talk or something like that, you will get the same questions after every talk. And what I learned early on in my public talk giving career is if you're going to get the same question every time, why not answer it in the talk? (laughs) Like physicists, the professionals have their idea of what the interesting questions are. But if you're talking to people who are not professionals and they have their own uh, uh, questions in their minds, I think that we should respect that and actually try to answer the questions that people really have so that that. Skill of anticipating what is going on in people's minds who are not experts uh, is something I'm trying to get better at myself. But I think it's very, yeah. very important for communicating between people with different levels of experience in any field at all.
1: Yes, the title, "The Biggest Ideas in the Universe: Space, Time, and Motion." I love the title because it says so so much. And I again, here I go with my questions. Was that the difficult choice? for the title and did you sort of hum and har about that or did the publishers, did they get involved in that?
2: You know, we always have a discussion over our titles and I have a very wonderful publisher and an editor, Stephen Morrow at Dutton, who I've worked with for, with all my books yeah. and I get great feedback from them. So I, I would say that this title is quite a good title. I'm happy with the title. The, the biggest disadvantage of it is that I have a previous book called The Big Picture. Yes, yeah. Which is on a very different subject, but it sounds kind of similar and it's it's too bad those two books have similar sounding titles. But what happened was, when I started my videos at the beginning of the pandemic lockdown, I, I just rushed into it and I didn't think very hard and I didn't plan on writing turning them into books. Yes. And I called them the biggest ideas in the universe. And the videos did very well. Like the, the one on general relativity and Einstein's equations has over half a million views. Yes. <laughs> so we're going to keep the title of the videos for the books.
1: Last question for you. Where we are now in 2022, where are we as as a human race as regards where we're going D- is that something that you you can give us
2: sort of an answer to well i can't give the right answer to because no one no, knows no, no. but we can, said, yeah, we can we yeah, can talk yeah, intelligently about that question because yeah. it's an important one and the way that i think about it is We always think about history and how we've gotten this far in hundreds of years, thousands of years of relevant history uh, pop to mind. And then we go forward to project and imagine the next few decades. (laughs) But the point is, we'll have hundreds or thousands or millions of years of future history. And I would say that right now, the scientific change in our lives as human beings has just begun. It is nowhere near. Finished, and it's uh, there's a good case to be made that there's deep truths about the universe that physics has yet to discover. Um, but the most obvious changes in our actual everyday lives might very well come from biology, not from physics. Like physics has picked its low hanging fruit in terms of technology, right? But yeah. biology has not. There's when people ask me, you know, will we ever build a spaceship that can move faster than the speed of light so we can get across the galaxy in a human lifetime. I say, no, physicists will not let you go faster than the speed of light. But what we can do is increase the human lifetime. That's something that does not violate the laws of physics. So I think that the changes that will happen in the future are going to be huge and difficult to imagine. um, And science isn't anywhere near done yet.
1: Oh gosh, there's so many more questions. Unfortunately, of course, I don't have enough time, but this is fascinating. (laughs) It's a fascinating conversation, although gosh, you just led me into so many things I'd like to talk about. My guest, Sean Carroll, the book, The Biggest Ideas in the Universe, Space, Time, and Motion. Sean, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for writing the book, and thank you for being such an informative guest. Really appreciate it.
2: Thanks very much for having me on.
1: The link to Sean Carroll's book is up at lifeelsewhere.co. Next up, did you know that Elton John, once known as Reg Dwight, was in a band called Bluesology? That and more details about the famed piano player right after this.
0: This is Life Elsewhere, hosted by Norman B. We would like to know what you think of our program. Send your comments to info at lifeelsewhere.com. Dot Co. That's C. O. Sign for what's been. When you hold me, or when you thrill me, my heart just sets on fire. Or when you love me, or when you hold me.
1: This is One Reg Dwight with Bluesology from 1966, a single titled Mr. Frantic, written and sung by Reg, a.k.a. Elton John. There is a new book that I want to tell you all about. It's about to be released. I guess the word is published, isn't it? It's called... Elton John at 75. And who's responsible for the words? It's our very good friend, Gillian Garr. Gillian, welcome back to Life Elsewhere.
3: Well, it's always great to be back here.
1: Yeah, it's nice to see you once again. You're looking fit and fine. How are you?
3: Pretty well. Pretty yeah? well. Just, uh, yeah. You know, hunkering down.
1: <laughs> now, every time we speak, you've got a new book that is about to be published. And this one is titled Elton John at 75. And I should let my listeners know. We'll have a we'll have an image up on our website, but it's Elton John with the whatever the what what is that symbol? It's the at symbol on your keyboard, isn't it? So we use it on Twitter and everything. So it's Elton John symbol 75. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like the graphic design there. That's 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 really interesting. So tell me about this. How did all this come about? Talking about Elton John.
3: Well, it actually came from my publisher, uh, Motor Books, a division of Quarto. I'd done books for another of Quarto's imprints, Voyager. That's how the editor knew about me.
0: Ah, okay.
3: And um, they decided they wanted to do this new series, Artists at 75. So far, it's been at 75. I think they might change some of the years. Um, they, they just did one on David Bowie. That was the first in this series. And mine was the second. And oh. what was great. Was that they had decided these were the artists they were going to cover. They were just looking for a writer, which is always great because then you don't have to pitch to the publisher. The right. publisher is already going to do this book. They you just have to convince them that it that it's you that should do it for them. And uh, I had just done a cover story on Elton John for Goldmine magazine oh. in connection with uh, Jewel Box, that big box set he put out of eight yeah. CDs. Yes. That um. Had a lot of rarities on it and this fabulous book with it. I actually did an email interview with him for that, you know, not with, quite with the same all... chatting, but yeah. Uh,
0: yeah.
1: How did that go?
3: Well, pretty well. I mean, first I sent in this list of questions and they said it was too many. <laughs> so huh. I, had to, <laughs> I had to cut it back. <laughs> I mean, of course, you always assume it's the person that's that's giving them the answers. Right. It's not, Exactly. A yeah, it sounded enough like him um also goldmine's a record collecting magazine so i knew i kind of had an in there because so i had a couple of questions that were just specifically about collecting yes. which i knew he'd like because not everyone's going to ask him about that right you know, what format he liked best and those kind of things
1: what did he say about that what format does he like best
3: oh vinyl vinyl
1: yeah, <laughs> you know, the yeah, sound. yeah.
3: there's so many so many advantages um when you hold it, you know, it wasn't the same ever holding a CD, maybe a nice CD box set, but even that's something more you admire and not something you pick up and study like, yeah, yeah, yeah I, like I did. And I'm sure you did growing up. Absolutely. You had an album, yeah. The 12 inch album cover and then reading everything on the back like you're trying to crack the code.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. I, I, I could tell you, Jillian, how many hours I spent just the, my very first album that I bought, we're going off tangent, of course, was the. British release of Elvis Presley's first album, and it didn't have any copy on it at all. On the front cover, all it had was this gorgeous photograph of this Greek god called Elvis. And on the back, it had another photograph, and it all it had was a list of the songs on it. That's all it had, nothing else. It was a mystery to me. I mean, it was just, oh, God, I, I love that album cover so much.
3: Well, you know, Elton was a huge Elvis fan himself. Yes. He probably had that same record. Probably um,
1: did. Yeah. He, yes. He,
3: he wrote in his uh, autobiography, Me, he writes about seeing a picture of Elvis in a magazine. And just that's one thing I put in the book. I said, it, it it's hard for people today to understand just how completely out of this world Elvis looked back then. He wasn't just different. He was shocking. And yes. I've heard that, especially in Britain, um, which you know people there didn't have as many television sets. Let's say, and uh, just it must have sounded like it was being beamed in from another planet or something. It or some it, it really
1: did, and I can I can identify with with Elton at that time uh, because there wasn't anything else like Elvis, and and the fact that I don't know because I was into art and whatever. But I recognized he was wearing makeup. He, 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 this was that a young man.
3: A, man. a man wearing a man. makeup.
1: And he did it himself. I mean, the story is, as you may know, is that he didn't have anybody tell him to do that. He did it. He put makeup on himself, which is just, it blows my mind. It really does.
2: That
3: was the, that was a great way to to get together with girls too. Had asked them for their makeup tips. That's
1: right. Yes, <laughs> yes, indeed.
3: So get let's get on with his makeup backstage.
1: Yes, let's get back to Elton. Lots and lots of stories have been told. There's been books. There's been movies. I mean, there's so much. When you took on the task of doing this, this collection, I should let everybody know, it's a colossal book. It comes in a box. I mean, in a what do you what do you call that? That it comes slipcase. Slip a tape. slip piece, yes, yes. <laughs> and it has a, a pull-out um, um, discography No, is it? No, it's got two pull-out pages. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you describe those?
3: Well, let's see. I wasn't even sure how this was going to look myself until yeah. uh, I got it. I, I knew there was going to be a timeline because yes. I had to provide the text for the timeline, and that you pull out. But I didn't realize there was also going to be a pull-out illustration, and yes. then there's packet of stuff there's this envelope you get that is a packet of like little memorabilia type things I had no idea that was going to be in there Um, I probably didn't well by then I would have known it was a slipcase because I it's probably mentioned that way in the press release but yeah they tried to make it um, I don't know kind of like a a little goodie bag or something more than just a book you've got all these little embellishments.
1: Yes do you think that this is specifically for fans or is this a book that It's for the general public.
3: Well, the general public might find it more interesting because I would think a a hardcore fan would probably know most of the things.
0: Yes. It's
3: it's like a list. It's basically a trivia book, but a very lavishly illustrated one with 75 moments in his life and career. Not just his career, because I talk about things that happened to him in his life as well, like his marriages. Um, But, you know, I find that um, fans also can like a book like this because they did a great job with the uh, illustrations i wasn't responsible for that thank right. you the publisher yes. uh s- some publishing houses like the authors to help with the artwork and i prefer not to and uh they did a great job anyway i mean as you've seen they just uh found all kinds of things not just pictures but uh you know reproductions of backstage passes and stuff like that and yes. uh, magazine adverts that that kind of stuff is always fun um so, yeah, I, I guess the general public might find it more useful because they wouldn't necessarily know these things, but a fan might find it more fun. Yes,
1: it is more of a trivia collection and, and trivia, not, in a, not, not to demean uh, it in, in any way whatsoever. It's, it's because there's so much there's so much in this book. It's a, it's a hefty book. I, I, I think I mentioned that already. But it's a, <laughs> this is a big book, Julia.
3: Yes. Yeah, it was heavier than I expected when I was bringing it home.
1: <laughs> when, when, when the Federal Express guy delivered it, he told the front desk, he, he said, God, what's in here? This is huge. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and that was just one of them. <laughs> <That's it.
1: laughs> so writing about Elton John, you, because you're a music journalist, you've been in the business for an awful long time. You you already knew a lot about uh, Reg. Reg you you know you I'm sure you there were not very many details that you didn't know or were there did you discover some things along the way putting this book together
3: well I hadn't realized that he'd recorded in Seattle before in the late 70s he worked with Tom Bell at K. Smith Studios, this studios in Seattle yes. which is yeah. gone um yeah. but I was I was doing another interview and we were talking about that because it was for a Seattle publication and I I began to wonder where did he stay when he was here Yes. Um, Maybe he stayed at the Olympic, which was the fancy hotel. Of it was the, the grand Olympics.
1: hotel. Or maybe he stayed yeah. like the Beatles did at the Edgewater.
3: Maybe, yeah, the rock and roll hotel. Yes. Both, both were, you know, not too far from um, from where Kay Smith was, which right. was downtown in those far I, off days.
1: I remember that studio only too well. I did a couple of voice work. Voice, oh, voice work okay. You yeah, even many had a years ago. With it. Yeah, many <laughs> years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you, so you discovered things like, he worked with Tom Bell in Seattle. Was there, was there putting the book together? Um, there's so much, as we said, there's so much has been written about Elton John over the years. Uh, were there parts that you, because you said you touched on his marriage, because that's, or his marriages, uh, these are yes, parts that some, sometimes have been sort of used sort of in a tabloid kind of way, and other, other publications have kind of avoided talking about that part of his life what was your judgment on that why did you want to get into talking about his marriages
3: um well certainly with the first one i mean you know it was a huge deal it got so much coverage at the time here he would already talked to rolling stone and claimed to be bisexual but i think i think most people didn't believe that because if they had then the fact that he married a woman later wouldn't have been so surprising, which it was. So I think some people thought, well, you know, what is really going on here? Now, before I had even signed on to do this book or knew I was going to do it, I read his autobiography because you know, I'm interested in him and he had his autobiography out and it got good notices. It's called Me. And so I read that. And in there, um, he talks about these things pretty openly. I had always wondered, why did you get married that first time? Yeah. um and in his book uh, which i you know i mentioned too in in mine uh referencing that he said he felt his relationships with men had not worked out and so maybe he should be with women after all uh which you think okay well th- that could make sense I, i understood then why he did it but then his he, he writes further in his book what he learned was that it, it wasn't that he needed to be with a woman it was that his real problem was his substance abuse. Yes. And he had to deal with that before he could be in a happy, successful relationship. Yes. Um, so I guess I put both into to, to show the balance. I mean, the big one was the first one was, uh, you know, the extravaganza and all the media coverage and very intensive. And then, uh, you know, they they weren't compatible. And within two years or so, they pretty much began drifting apart. So that was sad. But I felt it was important to put the other marriage in later because it's been happier and just just so overall successful just
0: know, we're picking
3: yeah. moments in his life and not just the career things although now those two have blended because his husband is now his manager as well so right so there's yes. that. um but just sort of uh i to me it, it signified how he came to be at peace with himself by getting in this relationship with david and at first they got i think but the civil partnership or whatever they used to call it cuz marriage wasn't legal yet um but then it became legal and so they transferred over to that way i think there was something you had to do if you were already in the civil partnership you transferred it somehow legally and they adopted two kids so you know the happy family and and actually uh, that's also important to mention because the reason he's no longer he's not going to do any long tours anymore is because of his family, because he wants to spend more time with his kids as they grow up. Yeah. So yes. there are all kinds of reasons to to write about it. And yeah. you know, you can write about uh controversial things in a straightforward way and they don't come across too tabloidy.
1: Right. You've I mean, done that. Do. You you've achieved that, Julian. I wanna I wanna just step back a little bit. You talked about recording in Seattle, but even before that. And I went to I saw Elton John and, and when he, I don't even think he was called Elton John was um, and I saw him at Eelpie Island, which was a gosh, I mean, it's not obviously it dates me a great deal. But he was in a rhythm and blues band way back then. And you write about that. You've got some photographs um, in the book or the people that put it together, the photographs. Some great photographs of Long John Baldry and Elton and Brian Auger and a number of people. I think Julie Driscoll was there. Great Mm -hmm. stuff to see those photographs. Really, really interesting stuff.
3: Well, he works so hard. That was one thing that working on this really brought home to me. He has such an incredible work ethic yeah I mean, you figure you know he left school and then gotten his first band, well, not his first band, but the first that recorded bluesology in nineteen sixty five and yeah. how many years ago is that long And with time. a few exceptions <laughs> when he's taken he's taken the occasional break and when he was recovering from his substance abuse, he just didn't perform for a year or so, but most of the time he's been steadily working since then,
0: yeah,
1: yeah, his output I was looking at, at in in your book the 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 list of different recordings and, and versions and goodness knows what, and collaborations, there's so many, it's really kind of remarkable when you think about it. The the overall picture of Elton John, what do you think for, not the fan now, but just for the general public, what, what do you think the, the perception is these days? Because I think once upon a time he was seen one way, but that image and that perception it does seem to me has changed. How do you see the public's view of Elton John these days
3: Well, I think now he's very much regarded as an elder statesman, and I think for a long time he wasn't taken as seriously as some other performers because he was a pop artist, and yes. so that was kind of seen as disposable and uh you know not very artistically important, mm. forgetting the sheer hard work that you have to. Put into it, even to come up with with pop songs, that still involves a lot of effort. Um, but i th- I think that's changed now because because he's continued to evolve musically. If he was someone who, you know, there are a lot of artists who we'll say Elton's big decade was the '70s, and there's a lot of artists who maybe their big decade was the '70s or the '60s or the '80s yeah. or whatever it is, and they have all their big hits, and they did some stuff later that did okay, but was not that great, but yet they're able to go around and they continue to tour and they they do the stuff that people remember from the 60s and 70s and maybe throw in a few new things so they're not quite nostalgia acts yes they could yeah. be or maybe they could be bigger and uh, still tour large arenas um and he could have you know gone into that but i think he he just was interested in doing something else musically so he just started getting into other areas like musicals you know that in the 70s, no one would have, would have thought of that for, for him to you know, write, write music m- songs for Disney cartoons.
0: cartoons but yeah. uh,
3: he started with that and that turned on to be a very successful side for him. Um, I think I only put two in there, Lion King and Billy Elliot, because those are, well, certainly the Lion King you have to, because that was the first musical that he worked on really. But um, you know, he found this other area in which to direct his energies and I think that kept him fresh and engaged. Yes, and he's always looking for new artists to collaborate with. Uh, like he, he did the album with Panal, or more like, more accurately, he gave his music to Panal to do whatever they wanted with. Right, uh, And I mean, just the other week he was working with Britney Spears. I yeah. thought, you know, if, if my book's deadline had been now, say instead of whatever it was last year, <laughs> that collaboration with Britney Spears would have been one of those numbers in there.
1: That's always the problem, isn't it, with publication? There's something happens just after you've done your final edit. There's another Especially, area. Yeah, yeah there's and another going,
3: area. Oh, I was going to say, and he's going to the White House in a few weeks to play for Joe Biden. That's
0: President right.
3: Biden. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I just read that today. I thought, oh, there's another.
1: <laughs> there's another area of his hard work and and I guess a passion, and that is his work, um, on behalf of AIDS and AIDS research and, and can you talk about that because I, th- I think that's an area that we we, we really should mention.
3: Um, yeah it's become it's become quite important to him and he sort of credits becoming clean and sober with giving him the energy to devote to all these other things uh, endeavors and so on and for him it seemed to start with Ryan White uh, the teenage boy who got AIDS through a blood transfusion and was shunned by his town this was in indiana i believe and anyway the story went national because of that and elton became his friend and a friend of the family and was there when ryan died eventually and he said uh being involved with that seeing what the family dealt with how they dealt with things he really felt it was incumbent upon him to step up and do more especially now as an out gay man and he said he'd done things like you know giving money to charities and been on an AIDS benefit single, but he felt this just isn't enough. I have to do, I have to do something more meaningful and more substantial. So he started his foundation and um, yeah, it's just been tremendously successful. He began hosting a big Oscar party as a fundraiser for his foundation, bringing in money that way. And uh, I, I know he's, um, He's talked there's a book he's he's put out actually about his his AIDS charity work. Um but you realize when when you read about the things he's done and the the different organizations the money will go to, you know, the foundation will give grants to so on and what they're involved with, you realize it's a lot of work. I mean, most of it the the public doesn't know about. You have to read about, you know, oh yes, they gave money so that this could happen in Africa. And he's teamed up with the Clinton Foundation to do things. Yes. Um, so, you know, there's just a lot of work that he does that you don't know about because, you know, it's not he's not out there talking about it. He's out doing it. But that obviously gives him a lot of satisfaction, too. He, that's that seems to be very much a part of his character. Once he became financially stable and successful and, you know, more money than he knew what to do with, he really does seem to be concerned with giving it back in one way or another.
1: Yes, yes. Something else we really have to talk about, and that's his collaboration with Bernie Torpin. Uh, again, lots has been written about this. Uh, you, I'm sure, had to think about where you were going to, how you were going to go about this in the book and what you were going to say and how much you were going to say. Just give me an overview from from your perspective about the relationship with Bernie Torpin.
3: Well, what, what struck me about it was just how randomly it came together. It wasn't like they were each out there looking. He wasn't, Elton wasn't out there looking for a lyricist and Bernie wasn't out there really hustling to find a musician. It just, it just really happened by chance because Elton was talking to someone at Liberty Records and they were maybe going to sign him and they decided not to. And then the AR guy he's talking to said, Oh, I just got these lyrics in from someone here. Maybe you'll like them and hands him this envelope with Bernie's lyrics that Bernie had set in. <laughs> and you know. Yeah. What if what if Elton was talking to a different a and guy that day and Bernie's lyrics are not on that guy's desk? Or what if the lyrics come in a week after Elton's visit? Or, you know, it, it just it still kind of boggles my mind. I mean, it's just so random. Any one of a million things could have happened. So that moment they wouldn't have connected because they yeah. probably wouldn't have met the other way. They had no friends in common. Bernie wasn't even living in London at that time and was not working at all in the industry. So there wouldn't have been that kind of connection that way. But I'm sure at some point they must have thought there was something kind of magical about it. Not that they just found each other, but that they connected so well. Uh, It it was just astonishing when you read them say how Bernie will have his lyrics and he gives them to Elton and within half an hour, Elton has a song written. And then Mm. it turns out to be your song, which it becomes this big hit. (laughs) So... (laughs) They must have felt there was something just incredible about the way they could work together.
1: And you know, back back in those days, Julian, as you talk about in the book, um, Elton was known as a, as a session musician. He was he was hired by different people. Like like uh, New York has a Tin Pan Alley, so does London. In so just off of Soho, Denmark Street is is Denmark known as Street, tin- yeah is, no- is known as Tin Pan Alley. And again, this is gonna date me, but uh, I I used to do album (laughs) sleeves. I would design album sleeves once upon a time in my graphic design days. And Elton John then was Reg, and and he was a a kind of a known figure around Denmark Street as being a good session musician. And that's a whole different area, area, isn't it? Well, Jimmy Page was another session musician, of course, at at that time. but it's amazing when you think about from those days and then the transformation in the 70s and then into the 80s, you capture this in the book. And it's not just the photographs and there are terrific photographs in here and memorabilia. But what you write, Julian, I think you've done a marvellous job with this.
3: Well, thanks. You felt it like conveyed the, the feeling
0: yes. of an era is I think
1: you've got the era, the, the eras across. I think you got the I think you pinpointed it very well. There's one area that I would like to talk about, and I and I want to preface this by saying if it's okay with you, and if it's not, we won't go there. But I did note in the book that it says in small print, this has not been authorized. I'm I'm just I'm I'm not using the actual words, but it's not been authorized by Elton John or Elton John's company or whatever. Is that something that we can talk about? Is that a, is that an issue?
3: Um, I I suppose we can. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I just I just wondered with with something that's not like a not non authorized biography, et cetera, Does that present for you as an author? Does that present any problems?
3: Um, with this kind of book, I would say no, because it's yeah. a pretty general book. Uh, you know, I was the contract specified fifty thousand words, which might sound like a lot, but it it really isn't that much. And particularly when you're covering a career that long, yes. So you know, you're pretty much just going to do a general overview. Um, uh, if you're, and actually, if in other instances, if you're doing an in-depth biography, for example, I mean, I think it's better to. I'd rather read a biography than an autobiography, an autobiography uh, of course, written by the person and just sort of authorized by them because they're writing it. Yes. but in you know, a biography, I think you can um be more objective and if there's kind of different levels of of involvement too you know there's one where the subject has no involvement whatsoever, and then there's some and that can be trickier where the subject cooperates meaning they'll agree to be interviewed but it's not authorized. Right. Authorized is where they can oversee it. And sometimes people cooperate on biographies and find out they're very unhappy uh with, with what came out. No. <laughs> uh, yeah. like Jan Wenner with um Joe Hogan's uh, Sticky Fingers biography of Jan. They were going to do a big promotion thing together but then Jan decided he didn't, didn't like, like it.
0: Yeah. yeah. And now
3: he's got his own out. Um but yeah, uh, as far as a disclaimer Maybe they just feel they have to put that on there.
1: Yeah. Last question. After writing the book, putting it together, knowing so much about Elton, got a favorite Elton John song.
3: Well, I always like Crocodile Rock. I suppose ah. that's uh, maybe that's the the first one I really got into. I mean, I remember when that one that one came out. I, yeah, I just I just love the sound. And what one fun thing about doing this was learning that Elton John himself can't stand crocodile rock and he's sick of playing it and one thing he's looking forward to when his tours stop is he says he's never going to play that song live again so i find that very very amusing you know he's a good showman and people that come to see him they want to hear crocodile rock so he'll do it but uh he'll give it to them he's happy with giving the people what they want but but when it's done and I think, you know, he's not done performing live. I think it's just he doesn't want to do any long tours like this anymore. Oh. Uh, sounds like we won't be able to hear Crocodile Rock again.
0: Okay. <laughs> but well, but we- I also
3: had a fondness for Funeral for a Friend, the opening instrumental from Yellow Goodbye Yellow Brick Road.
1: Yes. Yes. <laughs> It's a fascinating book. I think you've done an extremely good job, Julian. You always do. And 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 thank you for for sharing some of your insights into the book. And thank you for doing it. The book is titled Elton John at seventy-five. A link will be up at LifeElsewhere.co. dot Julian Gar, thank you as always for joining us at Life Elsewhere.
3: Well, thank you, and you're welcome.
1: Thank you to my guests, Sean Carroll and Gillian Garr. My email address comes up in just a moment, so jot it down, won't you, and send me a question or two. Thank you for listening. Till next time, be well, be safe, and as always, you know it makes sense. Be nice.
3: Bye-bye.
0: You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.com. Dot co. That's C O.